Well, about two years ago, uh, while I was interning uh, at my church in Orlando, and uh, also working on my master's program, um, to make ends meet, I was, I was serving at a Thai restaurant. And if you've ever served before, you know that you see some uh, interesting things serving. And uh, one of the things I like to uh, do, do most is kind of survey the scene at the restaurant and observe people's interactions She's saying that out loud now. That sounds kind of creepy. Um, but in a non-creepy way, I like to watch how people relationally connect. Because that's why we go out to eat, right? To, to form relationships. There's a very relational component to sharing a meal together. And I would say that, that it's not an exaggeration to say that more often than not, it, it looks something like this. Now, I don't know the exact stats on it. But I, I'm telling you, a significant portion of the people for a significant amount of the time would be doing this. It's, 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 it's true. And then you know what happens next when the food comes out, right? Don't act like you haven't done it before. They take their phone, then they take a picture of the food. It happened almost every time. Send it off into cyberspace so people that they don't actually hang out with might potentially like it, I guess. And, and this is what we do now. Um, when we are in front of live human beings, we stay on our phone, then we take pictures of our food. Um, it's, it's quite interesting. Uh, the question I would ask myself is, why do we do this? Not, not in a, a cynical way. It's, it's easy to see. It is kind of ridiculous, and we all do it too. But why do we do that? The reality is, I think, it's because we long to be known. We long to be known. So we keep trying to figure out new ways to connect. But the tragedy is, the more new ways we figure out to connect, the more isolated we are becoming. It's just true. The more ways we connect, the more isolated we feel. I was reading an article this week from The Guardian, and it said this. Uh, Research by Professor John Cacioppi at the University of Chicago found loneliness to be twice as bad for older people's health as obesity and almost as great of a cause of death as poverty. But shocking as this is, such studies overlook the loneliness epidemic among younger adults. In 2010, the Mental Health Foundation found loneliness to be a greater concern among young people than the elderly. The 18 to 34-year-olds surveyed were more likely to feel lonely uh, often, to worry about feeling alone, to feel depressed because of their loneliness, than the over 55s. So typically, we have thought that loneliness, as you get older, you get lonely with the empty nest, with spouses dying, this type of thing. What this research tells us is actually 18 to 34 is now statistically lonelier than the over 55s. It goes on to say, Dr. Grant Blank, a survey research fellow at the Oxford Institute, um, excuse me, the Oxford Internet Institute, points out, now catch this, that social media and the internet can be a boon and a problem. They are beneficial. They are beneficial when they enable us to communicate with distant loved ones, but not when they replace face-to-face contact. So what we're not seeing is social media is this massive problem that we just need to abandon. It, it, it is helpful. It's great to connect with distant people that you wouldn't connect with any other way. But the moment that it takes the place of face-to-face interaction, face-to-face contact, it produces a great loneliness in us. It is heartbreaking to, heartbreaking to, to, to see society, to see ourselves perpetually reaching for connection virtually, Filling our souls with saccharin while real live image bearers of God are right in front of us. So it's not surprising that the more we replace face-to-face contact with um, um, this saccharin pseudo-relationship, the more empty we feel. 
The reality is God created our souls, the engine of our souls, to be fueled by authentic relationship, authentic interaction. In Genesis 2, right after the creation, we get this beautiful phrase. It says, the man and the woman stood naked and unashamed. We were designed to be totally transparent and to feel no shame in that. That's what we were designed for. But then we know what happens just one chapter later in Genesis 3, right after sin entered the world. Look what it says. This is probably the most tragic line in all of Scripture. Genesis 3, 8. The man and the woman heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. They hid themselves. Can you imagine? I was thinking about this this week. What that must have been like for the angels to observe. To see God having created man in his image. The apex of his creation. And then sin entered. And now they see the Lord going to reach out to man. And what does man do now? He went and they hid themselves. But even here in chapter 3, we see that God is already starting to make provision for us. It says that he made them skins to clothe themselves. The truth is, friends, that we've been hiding ever since. We live in this tension of being designed to be fully known, but having this disposition now to hide ourselves. So for the next four weeks, we'll be walking together through a new series called Better Together, How Gospel Community Brings Freedom. So what do we mean by this? What do we mean by gospel community? Well, I want to read from a book called The Safest Place on Earth, which Renee recommended to me and which was huge, just a hugely impactful on me. So bear with me as I read this from Dr. Larry Crabb. He says, The cry from your heart is your longing to be part of a true church, to participate in spiritual community, to engage in spiritual conversations of worship with God and of co-journeying with others. You yearn for a safe place, a community of friends who are hungry for God, who knows what it means to sense the Spirit moving within them as they speak with you. You long for brothers and sisters who are intent not on figuring out how to improve your life, but on being with you wherever your journey is leading. You want to know and be known in conversations that aren't really about you or about anyone else, but about Christ. We need a safe place for weary pilgrims. And then he says elsewhere, I want to see us turn our chairs. Our souls need to face each other. And then I want us to get off our chairs and onto our knees. And before we climb back up into our seats, I want us to watch each other's feet. Maybe figuratively, maybe literally. Worship, humility, and then dialogue. That's the order. That's what we mean by gospel community. And it, be, uh, and it brings freedom because the one rule for this club is that you have to come empty-handed in need of your, uh, aware of your need for grace. This, this is a requirement to get into the club. Empty-handedness in need of grace. And that's why it brings freedom because it was never about how good you were. It's always about how great your Savior is. We are people who know that though Adam sinned and was covered with the skins of a beast, our sin has now been covered by the blood of a lamb. Though the first Adam was clothed temporarily, the second Adam has clothed us eternally with his righteousness. This is the basis for what we mean by gospel community. Paul gives us a very nice, succinct definition of gospel community in 2 Corinthians 5.16. 
He says, In light of the gospel, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. In light of what Jesus has done, we now don't regard each other according to the flesh. We regard each other by what Jesus has done on our behalf. For years, because of my own pain and my own sin, I built walls around my soul um, so people couldn't really see in. People uh, weren't um, free to speak into my life, and I even leveraged my, my gifts and my stature and these things so that to put a distance between me and other people. And a couple weeks ago, I was talking to my buddy Troy. He's one of my oldest friends. We've been friends since 10th grade, and so like all long friendships, we've had our, our ups and downs. And um, he was um, giving me some very pointed words. He was kind of exhorting me. And um, at one moment, he just kind of stopped the conversation. And he said, I want you to know how much it means to me that I can speak into you in this way now. He's like, I know there was a long stretch, most of our 20s, where I was just not welcome to talk to you like this. And And he was right. He wasn't welcome. And then he said this, which really struck me. He said, so these conversations are sacred to me. That's what we are talking about. A place to have sacred conversations about what's most important. Not forcing our way in a weird way into people's lives and trying to pry in. Not at all. Rather, inviting a few people in, people who don't regard you according to the flesh, but rather have a vision for what the Spirit is rotting in you and are excited about that. Who aren't Um, horrified by your sin because they know their own sin. They're keenly aware of that, but they're also keenly aware of what Jesus has already done to uh, to take care of your sin. People who are safe. So this is the heart behind the series that we're going through this month. That we would, as a church, start sounding new depths of relationship where we will find freedom. And then we will be filled to continue pouring out into our community because that's what everybody needs and that's what we have to offer them. Gospel community and I'm telling you, friends, when people start to see authentic relationships in our church, that will be winsome to them, and they will want to be a part of that. That's what we want to do, guys. We want to be a safe place for our community. But today, we're going to begin this whole series. My task is to lay the foundation for us that we're going to build on for the next three weeks. And we're going to do this by starting where we always start. We're going to start with God and who he is. The truth is, the reason that we long to be part of a community is because we were made in God's image, and God himself is a community. Our text begins in John 14, 8 today. It says, Peter said to him, show us the Father, and it is enough. So Jesus has been telling them how they're going to get to the Father, that he is the door back into relationship with the Father. And so Philip, finally exasperated, says, show us the Father, and and it will be enough. Now listen to the response of our patient Lord. He says, Have I been with you for so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and that the Father is in me? What a paradigm-shifting statement. Jesus is teaching us That within the very Godhead, there is a loving relationship. There is a community. That God is a community. So here we see the Father and the Son are both one God. But then look here at verse 15, and Jesus completes the picture. He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth 
whom the world cannot receive. So we have one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if you struggle with the uh, Christian doctrine of the Trinity, you should be really encouraged today because even Jesus' disciples didn't have a category for this. They had no concept of this because our vision of God was veiled ever since the fall. So Jesus comes on the scene and is explaining them in a deeper way. How can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. That when the prophet Isaiah says that Jesus was Emmanuel, it really did mean that it was God with us. So I want to spend a few moments showing you the doctrine of the Trinity is the crystal clear teaching of Scripture of who the God of the Bible is. Because you might be like me. You grew up in the church and you always heard about the Trinity, always believed the Trinity. And I just always thought there was some verse in here somewhere that said, and the Trinity is, there's one God and three persons existing in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One essence, all of that. The reality is that the word Trinity never appears in the Bible. But Christians have always used this language to refer to who God is. So that shouldn't put us off. The reality is it's what we used to describe the clear teaching of Scripture. Ever since the second century, Christians have used the language of the Trinity. So I want to push pause on our initial text just for a moment and take a few minutes to pour biblical cement into this doctrine for you so that you can have a great confidence in who God is and what this doctrine means for our lives. And also so when our Jehovah's Witness and Mormon friends come to our door, that we can show them from Scripture why they are wrong about Jesus. Um, not to win debate points, but so that they can actually believe in a Jesus who actually can save them. A Jesus who really is very God of very God, and so who has the power to save. He is mighty to save. This is not insignificant. So we're going to cover a lot of scripture quickly. So just give me your minds for a couple minutes because this is so vitally important to us as Christians that we understand where we get the doctrine of the Trinity from, why we desire community so badly, because we were made in God's image. This is not peripheral this morning. All right, so run with me here for a bit. We see the creation of humanity in Genesis 1.26. This is what the text says. The very first chapter of the Bible. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. So from the very beginning at the moment of creation, we see God referring to himself in the language of a plurality. Let us make man in our image. We see the Trinity in Genesis 1. At the birth of Christ, in Luke 1.35, And the angel answered her, that's Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So we have the Holy Spirit, the Most High, and then the Son of God. We have the Trinity in Luke 1. John 15, verse 26, Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, that's the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So when the Holy Spirit comes, who comes from the Father, he'll bear witness about me, the Son. God is a community. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 17, it says, And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near, that is, the Son. For through him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So we have son, uh, the Son coming and preaching peace to us, and now we have access through the Spirit to the Father. It's the Trinity. 
2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. This is uh, the great uh, benediction at the end of 2 Corinthians. He says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's the Trinity. Now, Matthew is actually really helpful for us because he bookends his book with Trinitarian language. At the birth of Jesus, Matthew uh, chapter 3, it says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. We have the Son coming up from the water, the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove, and then the Father saying, This is my beloved Son. And then one of the most familiar Trinitarian texts at the end of Matthew, uh, when Jesus is giving us his, his great commission, he says to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Not in the names of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but in one name in three persons. Acts chapter 5, 3 and 4, you still with me? All right, good. He says, uh, Paul says, I'm excuse me, Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to man, but to God. Why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? You're lying to God when you lie to the Holy Spirit. Acts 13, 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then Acts 20, we get a beautiful Trinitarian text. Paul says, he's leaving the church at Ephesus and he's saying goodbye to the Ephesian uh, elders and he's giving them one final exhortation. He says, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Now catch this, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. The Holy Spirit made you overseers of the church of God, which he obtained with his blood, which God obtained with his blood. It is the clear teaching of scripture that there is one God who consists in three persons, that God is an eternal loving community, that he is totally perfect within himself. And here's something else to think about too. If God wasn't Trinitarian in nature, if it was just one person, one God, he would have had to have created in order to love. If there wasn't a duplicity or or a multiplicity in the Trinity, God would have had to create it in order to love. But we know from 1 John that God, by definition, is love. It's the Trinity. Therefore, everything that God does is a community effort. That's That's why we're here this morning, is because we love to be part of a community, because our God is a community. So I I don't want us to just look at this doctrine abstractly, but I want to pull it out of the clouds and show you three different ways that uh, everything that God does is really a community effort. So number one, creation was a community effort. So we see the very opening lines of scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So we have God creating and the Spirit hovering over the creation. And then John 1, the very opening lines then of John. In the beginning, does that sound familiar? Was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word was with God. The word was God. The word created everything. The word became a man. This is the Trinity, friends. Creation was a community effort. Number two, the resurrection of Jesus, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, was a community effort. All three persons of the Trinity participated in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Acts 2, 23-24 shows us how the Father participated. It said this, Paul speaking, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. The Father foreknew the definite plan, and then he raised Jesus from the dead. In John 10, we have Jesus speaking. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Someone might say, wait a minute, Jesus. Luke just told us that, that God raised you from the dead. And Jesus would say, yeah, that's absolutely right. God did raise me from the dead. I am God, and we are a trinity. And then Romans eight eleven, this beautiful, familiar text. Paul says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the resurrection was a community effort. We have the Father raising the Son. We have Jesus saying, I raise myself. And we have the Spirit participating and indwelling in us as well. And thirdly, we see that salvation, your salvation this morning, was a community effort. This is not some abstract doctrine. If you are here this morning as a Christian, it's because the triune God, each person, played a role in bringing you to salvation. Galatians 4 crystallizes this theme amazingly. Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Father sent forth the Son, and then the Father and the Son gave us the Spirit. And 1 Peter 1 gives us another wonderful crystallation. He says, this is how he begins his epistle. To those who are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the spirits, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his blood. So do you see where we see the Trinity? Do you see why we call this the Trinity? I couldn't find the, um, the quote who actually said it, but I, I remember hearing it when I was um, going through my program that um, they say, the church no more invented the Trinity than Newton invented gravity. He just saw what was there and then just gave it a name. That's exactly as Christians what we have done. It has been clearly revealed. God has clearly revealed to us who he is. Mark Driscoll said it well in his book called Doctrine. The Trinity is not a doctrine to be philosophized beyond the teachings of Scripture, but rather a humble, loving, worshipful, relational, diverse, submissive, and joyful life to be entered into by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. And friends, so our text today should leave us totally stunned. Even the response of the disciples show us 
how incredible the reality is that Jesus is sharing with us. He's pulling back the curtain for us. And he's saying, when you've seen me, man, you've seen the Father now. In 1799, during um, Napoleon's uh, military conquest in Egypt, a French soldier stumbled upon this, this bizarre black stone near the city of Rosetta. Uh, see, I've already given away the ending. And it had some uh, bizarre inscriptions on it, so they excavated it because they could see that this is uh, something of great imports. And what they saw was that there was three different languages inscribed on this stone. There was Greek, and then there was two forms of Egyptian hieroglyphics. And what was the most incredible thing about it was in the Greek, it said that all three of these texts are identical. So you might say that sounds interesting. I don't see why it's so incredible. Well, here's why it's incredible. Egyptian hieroglyphics was a dead language to us. We couldn't read hieroglyphics. We had no idea what they were saying. 2,000 years ago, we lost the capacity to understand what the Egyptians were talking about. But now we possess this stone that if we could crack the code, we could unlock an entire culture that hitherto we had no access to. And so for years they had um, professionals come and experts come and try to crack this code to figure out from the Greek what were these hieroglyphics saying. And then finally one day they did it. And in that moment, immediately, the entire world of ancient Egypt was now open to us because we could read everything that they had written for the most part. It's absolutely incredible. And in the same way, I would say in John 14 today, Jesus has given us the type of Rosetta Stone. Because the Trinity, friends, is the Rosetta Stone to our own hearts. The Trinity is the Rosetta Stone to your soul. The reason you desire to be loved, the reason you desire to be in community, the reason you are sitting here this morning is because you were made in the very image of God. And this is why we talk about community groups as well, not because we want to put something else on your calendar. We know you live in L.A., you don't need anything else in your calendar. But it's because we so badly need people who no longer regard us according to the flesh, who know that the Spirit is working in us, who can sense the Spirit working through them as they pour truth into you. And this is so important Sunday mornings, but we need so much more. As Christians, we need to be in a community where people actually know us, like the Trinity. That's why. And so I hope that you see that the Trinity is not an obscure doctrine. It is the Rosetta Stone for your soul. When Jesus pulled back the curtain for us and said those words, how can you say, show us the Father? The, our entire universes became open. We could finally understand our deepest longings. Because this was the first time since the fall that we could actually see the face of God. That we could actually see what God looks like if he were a man. What his character is. How he really engages with us. And so Jesus is the door back into that community, but he's also our example of what that community can look like. A few chapters later, right before Jesus is about to be arrested and crucified, he gives us the longest recorded prayer in the entire New Testament. And so what I'd like us to do, now that we have this Rosetta Stone, is to just let these words from Jesus, this prayer from Jesus, fall on our hearts today. I'm not going to read the entire thing, but I'm going to read a, a section of it. And I don't even encourage you, if, if, if you feel so compelled, maybe close your eyes and just ask the Spirit to impart this truth to you as we hear from Jesus this morning. 
It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the word. Yours they were, but you have given them to me. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. That they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent to me. I made known to them your name, And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray. Triune God of heaven, we are utterly amazed at your revelation this morning. Lord, you have not been ambiguous to us even though through sin we have felt the compulsion to hide ourselves, you have pursued us. When we see Jesus, we see the Father because the Spirit has illuminated our hearts. And so almost spontaneously, we can't help but respond with Abba, Father. And Father, as a church, I echo the prayers of our Lord that we would be one in the same way that the Trinity is one. That we would have a deep desire to serve one another. That we would see um, awkwardness or inconvenience as a tiny speed bump on the road to deep relationship. (laughs) Freedom. Lord, we want to have all that you have for us. And we know that all this is a work of your spirit. And so we come this morning pleading with you to work in our church for our freedom, for your glory, for Pasadena as a whole. That you may be glorified in all these things in the name of Christ Jesus, who is our Lord. Amen.